You're listening to The State of Love and Trust, a Pearl Jam podcast. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The State of Love and Trust. It's a Pearl Jam podcast, and I'm one of your two hosts, Jason Carapesi. And alongside me, as always, is Paul Gillieri. Paul, our listeners may have noticed a different opening to the show. Um, That was intentional. Your podcast platform of choice did not screw up. Um, It's an interesting and difficult week here in America. And um, for the, I don't know, let's just call it the millionth time, there has been um, a, a mass shooting with many, many casualties in this country. And for the first time in, well, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but in my memory, first time in nine and a half years since a lot of school children were um, murdered. And so the opening of this uh, episode was um, a second of silence for each of those in Uvalde, Texas. We're going to be talking about gun violence. And obviously in the scope of Pearl Jam, uh, you guys all know that there are three big songs um, that focus on this. Of course, Jeremy, of course, Glorified G, and of course, Rival. And we didn't want to just go through the songs because we all know the songs. But how do, how do the songs affect people that have been, um, I'd say, directly or indirectly affected by gun violence and who better to talk about that than not paul and i who are just a couple of joes here um but a george instead a george kusaglu um from uh, richmond va and uh, george welcome to the show thank you thanks glad to be here pleasure to have you george do you want to tell the people let's take the folks you know what what your cv is and why you're why we asked you to come on yeah, sure. Uh, my name's George. As you said, I'm a licensed clinical social worker. Uh, been and I work currently in emergency services, crisis work, also known as. Um, and I work private practice. I I, I work with a lot of I, I do a lot of men's issues, a lot of trauma work, uh, with 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 um, mostly with adults right now, but with men and women, but mostly specializing in trauma work with men. I've been doing this for shoot a long time now. I graduated from grad school in 2001 um, and been doing something in that nature ever since. I started off working with adolescent boys in a residential facility. Um, some boys who had who had did some, who have who had done some pretty not so nice things. Uh, a lot of them were sexual offenders, um, and uh, that's where I started off, and really where I. Uh, I, I think learned a lot about working with uh, doing trauma work and working with men in general, in, in this case, adolescent boys, but around tra- trauma work. So let's just jump right into it. Then um, there's probably very few things as traumatic as being involved, or in this case, maybe even being a parent of someone of who's been a victim of gun violence especially in this kind of setting where, and let's just put all the cards on the table. Everybody on this phone call, Zoom, as we say, has children. Um, yeah. Your kid's, what, 14 now? 
He's 11. He's 11. Jesus. 11 Christ. years old. I thought it was a mustache <laughs> on that photo. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, Paul and I each have a couple that are under the age of seven. Um, and so this, this hits a little bit different. Um, uh, your wife, my cousin, and I are, are from Connecticut, and we know um, firsthand uh, how that is um, considering Newtown and Sandy Hook. Yeah. Um, how many cases have you seen in your in your professional life where the trauma is from gun violence? Ooh, in my crisis work, there's often guns involved. I'm dealing with suicidal, um, often suicidal uh, clients who, yeah, a lot of times there's guns involved. And when there's guns involved, it always really ups the ante as far as what we have to do and what we can do. In fact, there was a specific crisis call I had, um, you know, my crisis work, um, I'll, I'll be on call and I take calls from anyone in the community. Anyone can call, um, someone who is, um, someone's suicidal. I get calls from the police. Hey, we got this person who's presenting with mental health issues. We might need you to evaluate them. So I'll get calls from the police. I'll get calls from hospitals when people end up in ERs. Um, one specific call that I can remember is, yeah, a guy, I was on the phone and a guy actually had a gun to his head. Uh, yeah. And it was a long, long call. <laughs> and um, it ended up turning out okay. Uh, but yeah, I was on the call for maybe an hour or more um, while the police were getting out there on the call with the police. Also, like I said, this one ended up okay. What would you say um, when, when you talk to people who are in a bad way like this? Um, there is a chance that some people can't be I guess, talked out of whatever they're going to do mm -hmm. or, or maybe they've just done something and they had the remorse. Now they're caught. I mean, I don't, I don't know how, how it works, but like, is there, is there a sense of um, almost like you can't, you're not in control of the situation. You're, you're trying to do whatever you can in your control to convince a person that using a firearm or, or, yeah, using a firearm is is not going to solve the problem. Is not going to um, fix what's bothering them. And on top of that, how do you talk to somebody who is on the receiving end, or maybe has a family member or a friend who is who is on the receiving end of, of that kind of thing? Yeah, when 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 you get a call um, when I'm working crisis and I get a call from someone who is probably in one of the worst spaces in their life um you 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 really you know I, it's it's my job to assess and decide if they have to go to a hospital um oftentimes against their will um so i have to decide if they're um if they're a danger to themselves or if they're a danger to harming someone else um also if they're so psychotic that they are mentally impaired that they can't care for themselves that's another reason why someone might be forced into a hospital against their will. But yeah, there's so much out of your control. Like you said, um, we can only, you know, we can only assess with what we have. Um, you can never, you know, if someone's 
dead set on harming themselves, um, you know, they're going to do it or, or, um, but, but so, so you can only go with what you have. I think the first thing you try to do when you get a call, um, regardless of who it is, is you're trying to connect with, you're, you're not so concerned about, or at least I'm not so concerned about their behaviors as I am to connecting to their pain. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to get underneath that, those behaviors to what's fueling them, which is always some sort of um, pretty significant pain. And this right. could be, and this is where we talk about the trauma that people are carrying with them. And we don't know. And when I'm doing the emergency services, it's just quick. When I'm private practice, I can move a lot slower with that and unravel that in a, in a slower manner. But even when I'm doing the emergency services, the first thing I'm trying to do is make a connection. Um, when I, when I'm able to make a genuine connection to the part of this person who is carrying this sadness and pain that ultimately they're disconnecting from or else they wouldn't be on the phone with me. They're disconnecting from and managing in whatever way they can. When I'm able to drill down to that place and help them be with that part of themselves and, and also it's me being with them in that moment, then oftentimes they're disarmed and I can start doing some work. I want to, See if you could speak to that in a little bit more more detail here. Um, there have been 27 school shootings this year alone, 119 school shootings in total since 2008. Um, the highest number, 34, occurred last year, 10 shootings in 2020. Dare I argue there would have been more if more schools had been in session had it not been for the pandemic. And I never thought I would say the pandemic was a blessing, but... Uh, it makes me think of the, the song Rival, which Jason and I have, have broken down on this podcast before. I'm going to read you a set of lyrics here. It's the opening of the song. It says, all my rivals will see what I have in store. My gun. I've been harboring fleets in this reservoir, red sun, and this nation's about to explode. You talked a little bit about empathy there. There was an article that came out in the Los Angeles Times this past week, it was an op-ed and they studied every mass shooting since 1966. Mm -hmm. And they discovered that there were four commonalities. uh, One of which was that the vast majority of mass shooters in the study experienced early childhood trauma and exposure Mm -hmm. to violence at a young age. So I'm curious just how, how can music affect or help situations like this? I mean, obviously, most of us listening, and, and certainly Jason and I, are, are not equipped necessarily with the the skills that you have to to sit with somebody and, and, and talk with somebody. That said, there's something about music as a universal language that allows us to kind of empathize and relate to this reservoir of feelings, right? As it were, you know, and and there are people who are driven to violent tendencies that I don't think any of us here can truly, truly relate to that. I mean, to be driven to the point where you want to do that, but there's something triggering there. And, and I think that, that, that depth, that well of feeling is something we can all relate to, 
to some degree or in some capacity. So I'm curious in your experience, has there ever been um, a connection that you've felt with music that you've been able to say, hey, when I get off these calls, this is how music kind of helps me mm-hmm. uh, find balance or, mm-hmm. and this is, this is probably kind of a, an off the wall question here, but did, did you ever find in practice that music was a useful tool when you were working with someone? Yeah. Yeah. So I think the, the first, the, the thing that struck me when you, when you were reading those lyrics is yeah, yeah, that's a guy, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm picturing someone in extreme, I, I'm picturing someone expressing extreme anger. And the first place I go is what happened to this person? What's going on with them? What's where, what's underneath that? What pain are they carrying that they're disconnecting to? And as a therapist, how can I start to work with them to get to that place? And oftentimes guys like, or, or, or not just, not just males, whoever the, 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 the character that you just described in that song, um, Oftentimes they've never had not even one person show them care and show them um, empathy and softness. And they've had people just focus on uh, their negative behaviors or the harmful behaviors. And and it's hard because sometimes those behaviors are really um, nasty. Now, when we, when we talk about this shooting, I mean, this is something that's so extreme that I can't even, I, I can't even wrap my mind around. But getting back to the music, as far as um, as far as how that's helpful for someone's process in doing exactly what I just mentioned and starting to connect to that part of themselves that carries pain that all of us as human beings um, turn away from because that's how we get through the day. But but when we turn away from that pain, that pain is still there and it comes out in various ways, um, with men specifically, violence, um, uh, other kinds of acting out, and, and, and specifically with men, we're socialized to stay way away from that and to get our, um, our, our needs from self, for self-esteem met through performance. Uh, you know, how many, fo- how, how many touchdowns can you um, make? How, how, many, how much money can you make rather than learning how to empathize and care with yourself first and consequently with the people around you. As far as music for me um, and my own process, because everything I do with my clients, I've done with myself. You know, I have my own history. I have my own family history. uh, I have my own difficulties that I've had to really work through in order to be a good therapist. Um, But for me, music has been just, as you said, a connection to this to a connection to my own pain, a connection to the fact that there's something more out there. I think in my twenties, I had no idea. I mean, the pain was like a big black cloud of sadness and the music, um, Pearl Jam, uh, for me, Springsteen, um, various other artists, it allowed me to realize that there is something, there's something more out there that I need to find. Um, and I think in my twenties, I looked for that externally. Um, as I got older, I realized 
that I had to turn inside to find what that was and to reconnect again to these parts of myself. And I was able to do that through a relationship with a good therapist and relationships in general. Um, and, and, and so, so for, for me, the music was really, you know, showing me that there's something more out there that I need to find. So just allowing me to be like, all right, there's a journey that you need to be on. Um, um, show, feeling that, Hey man, you know, you're not alone in this. Um, there's, you know, that these are Pearl Jam, you know, again, uh, for me, Springsteen, uh, Bob Dylan, they, they, they were, they were expressing these, um, these themes and this emotion that shows you you're not alone in this, you know, there's, there's people out there that are with you. Um, so it gives you hope and it, 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 it sparks the process of starting a journey to better figuring out how to connect to the world around you. Uh, so this is from Jeremy. Daddy didn't give attention to the fact that mommy didn't care. King Jeremy, the wicked ruled his world. You, you talked about, not only just empathy, but this, this process by which someone goes through life carrying the weight, the burden of this pain. And part of it is informed by the fact that those that should provide and love and, and, and give the empathy and that, that understanding are the ones that give the least attention. And, and, but what I find interesting is oftentimes we see these, these disillusioned shooters, these perpetrators, and in the case of Columbine and, and sadly with Rob Elementary as well, these were young males mm-hmm. who carried out these despicable atrocities. Yeah. And I mean, I, the interview with the shooter's mother, where she was begging that society forgive her son and, and at a loss of words as to what could have driven him. I couldn't help but think here was a woman that was grieving, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it was difficult defined empathy for her but i felt that on a human level it's not that she's not deserving of it but there's so much context that that's missing because how could she be not how could she be so unaware mm-hmm. of her own child and and someone that, that possessed tendencies that might drive him in this direction this yeah. idea of of as a parent because we're all parents here the need to be more connected to our children and, and how easy it is to get distracted by devices and, and, and the, you know, the whole host of, of, of worlds that media provides us as opposed to the world that our children live in and running the risk of letting them feel like they have to become kings of those worlds mm-hmm. and fall into this, this descent into tragic madness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it, brings up, it brings up so many complicated emotions and feelings in all of us, I imagine. And yeah, I've heard the mom speak to and same, same as you were saying, I mean, there's a part of me that's just like, you know, uh, I don't really want to hear about your, I want to, I want to hear about these poor victims, man, you know? And, and then there's a part of me also that, yeah, there is some empathy, but I I think ultimately what we're looking at when you see a mom, when you see his mom and sort of her disconnect we're looking at multi-generational trauma right and i don't know what mom's story is but i'm sure uh she's probably got her own trauma and own pain and and what that does i, I was just listening to a, uh just doing a consultation with a uh uh harvard 
grad Harvard trained psychiatrist who does a lot of this trauma work also. And, and he says he, one of the things he was one of the real simple things he was saying is trauma blocks love, love heals trauma. And, mm. and, and so I imagine his mom and who knows how far back are carrying so much stuff that they've never dealt with. Um, and when you disconnect again from this part of yourself that carries that pain, um, yeah, it helps you move forward because you're disconnecting from the pain, but you're also disconnecting from everything else too. You can't be connected to your kid. You can't be connected to your partner. Um, if you're disconnecting from that pain, you are disconnecting to everyone around you and you're not there in a way you need to be. Um, so a lot of what we're looking at is really multi-generational trauma that's never been resolved and never been taken care of. And um, it hasn't been too long where people have, you know, this, 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 this field of trauma work is, uh, I mean, it's been around on some level, but it, it's, it's, we're learning about and understanding more and more about it all the time. Um, but yeah, when, when you look at the mom, that's, that's where I'm thinking as a therapist is, what what's happening here, you know, that, that, that caused her to disconnect completely. Um, and, and I'm making assumptions cause I don't know, obviously, but I've, I've been in enough situations and worked with enough people to, you know, um, be able to kind of get a pretty good understanding of what might be going on. You mentioned earlier, uh, you alluded to this idea that a lot of young men have to uh, or, or they, they need to feel, or they think they need to feel manly or, or, you know, like real men by showing some sort of, of force. Um, and the ultimate force is, is to them having a gun. I mean, one of the songs in the triumvirate of gun songs that the uh, program has is a song called glorified G, mm-hmm. which we will focus on, uh, Paul and I will more later, but one, one of the lines here is, um, feels so manly when armed. Mm-hmm. And I guess the question is when you have these disconnects and you're, you're right, I bet, I'm sure there's something with the mother that made her completely oblivious to what the son was going through mm-hmm. because of what she wasn't giving him and whatever circle or combination of that is going on. Um, why is it then that the, let's just say the ignored or um the way that her son and many other young um, adult men feel, why do you think it is that they, they take that trauma inside that disconnection and cause it's that, that's their own trauma. Right. And mm. turn it into this or, or t- turn to the, well, I'm going to show you, I'm going to show everybody that I'm, I'm worth paying attention to mm-hmm. and the ultimate way to shoot off fireworks essentially um, yeah. is to go this route. Why do you think that is? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question and a pretty tough question. And I want to, I want to be clear that, uh, you know, while, while I, um, while I, I, you know, I believe that, um, most of the people that are doing these violent, um, heinous acts are, are carrying a, a, a great deal of trauma. I want to be clear that there's tons and tons of, of people out there who have been hurt really bad, who never yeah. um, inflict pain on others. And Jason, I don't know exactly why. Yeah. One person 
might have a lot of pain that they're carrying and they just, they're depressed and, and quiet and sad and they never hurt a single person. And then someone else lashes it out. I'm not, you know, I, I, that's all real. I'm, I'm not capable of answering that. Um, you know, I, I, I think, I think probably the more severe the trauma, I know like, you know, extreme physical or sexual abuse or neglect. Those are, those are the really big ones, but, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's people who go through a tremendous amount of horrendous stuff in their life and never hurt anyone. So yeah, I don't know, Jason, I can't answer why someone like this would take their pain and just explode it outward in such a horrifically, um, unempathic way, you know, Can I ask you a question, George, mm-hmm. you specialize in exploring trauma and its connections to masculinity. Mm-hmm. The lyric that Jason read feels so manly when armed. What, what, what would you posit is some of the, a reason behind the need to, have to possess a level of power that provides superiority or command over others mm-hmm. to feel a certain sense of mass or security mm-hmm. that one associates with masculinity. Like yeah. what, wh- why, why is it in your experience that when men have trauma, the most difficult path that they so often find that the, the path most clouded is the one of, of vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, it's not a complete answer, but we live in an incredibly patriarchal world. And, and um, I'll, I'll tell you this, I've, I've had guys in my therapy office who were really tough guys, like, uh, you know, guys, you wouldn't, no one would really mess with, at, at least on the outside, really tough. They ended up in therapy somehow. I don't know. Maybe their wives sent them there. Maybe they were court ordered to come there. Um, but just guys who didn't believe in therapy, didn't believe in any of this stuff. And yet dealt and had this, you know, very um, kick-ass way of dealing with whatever's going on with their pain. I don't care. I'm going to, I'm going to. And I've had these guys in my therapy office and after we've done some work, um, I mean, sobbing um, and really just sobbing and being there with these wounded parts of themselves um, in ways that they never had. And leaving the therapy session a changed person. Um, I'm not saying their life is going to be perfect after that, but the world is different. Um, guys that I never thought I'd be able to get to. So I think part of part of what I'm getting at is these guys, when they were given the opportunity, when I, in my therapy session, gave them an opportunity to be vulnerable and to connect to these places where they were hurt in a more productive way, other than lashing out on people, they were relieved. They were, they, they, they like, Oh my God, I can't believe this. I mean, it, it, I mean, I've got guys, yeah, really tough guys. I mean, uh, who again, leave my office, like, 
I can't believe this, George. I can't believe this. Just because I helped and I gave them the invitation, I provided a safe spot for them to be able to do that. I don't know that's too, I don't know that there's too many invitations and too many safe places for for them to be able to connect to those parts of themselves in that way. I think it's changing for the better. Um, I'm seeing, you know, I think, you know, from my dad's time to now, I think it's changing. Although at the same time, we're seeing way more horrific stuff. So there's other things going on, on, but, um, but, but basically when I, when, when, when given the invitation, a lot of guys and not everyone, a lot of guys are like, you know, F you, you're, this is crap and leave. But a lot of times guys I thought would never do this work when given the right invitation and given the right setting and given the right guidance, there's like a relief, man, that they don't have to carry around this bullshit protective part of themselves. That's just lashing out. There's um, I don't know if you've listened to the newest Kendrick Lamar album, but he, he very much is open about mental health on it. Mm-hmm. Now, Let's put it out there. I pretty much every mass shooting that we've heard of in the last however many years, mm-hmm. white male, mm-hmm. white male. Mm-hmm. But but that but to be but to be fair, there's plenty of gun violence in the black community as well. So for him to come out and be like, this is a pathway to not retaliate in the way that we've been doing it, mm-hmm. and, and to have to have him do that and put himself in the spotlight, amazing is huge. And I just and, and the perpetrator Rob Elementary was also not a white male, so we're, right. we're, you know that that it, it's expanding in ways. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, like, my point is, is like, where are where are the um the not the avatars, but where are the people to look up to to make a point that to to your point, the stigma around therapy being um, not manly or not something that. We need to, what is it about? How do we get to a place where more of these people, these these young males, see this as a, as a viable and respectable way to deal with their mental pain? And yeah. I, I know, I, by the way, I want to spin this around to the victims in a minute, but I want yes, to touch on this yes. before we move, move along. Yes, yes, man. I, you know, it's it's. I don't know. I, I, other than getting it out there, I mean, I, I work with people on an individual basis, and um, like I said, I, I see a lot of guys making real changes. Man, my partner Melissa, she's she's they they do more. Um, they're working in the community uh, and to make things more trauma informed. They're going into agencies, um, working on how to make their agencies trauma informed. Working on on a more global level, how to, how to implement some of these ideas, but it's hard, man. And, and, and again, I was going back to, I mean, we've got, and I'm not going to, you know, we've got leaders on both sides of the aisle of the free world who are just completely um, not in touch with uh, these parts of them that these parts of themselves that carry pain, not in touch with their own humanity. And these guys are getting elected, man. These somewhere, um, these are what a vast majority of the population believes is a, a, a productive male. These guys who, again, have 
very little connection to their own humanity and very little empathy for what's going on with them and, and understanding of their own ones and have propped themselves up with these protective parts of themselves. Um, that is, I mean, for, a, for someone like me watching this, it's just so blatantly obvious, but for so many people, that's the definition of a good leader. Um, and I don't know, man, it's, you know, other than continuing to, get the word out. And for me, you know, continuing on a case to case basis, I, I really, it happens all the time where I have guys leave my therapy session, they're changed and they're, they're better husbands, they're better fathers and they're going out and spend, and, you know, I've worked with police officers I've worked with and they're going out and, and, and they're, they're going back to their colleagues and saying, Hey man, this is what I'm doing. You got to go check if not, you know, this guy out, but if not me, you got to go check in with yourself because this is life-changing stuff. Um, but I don't know, Jason. Yeah. It's, and again, I, I, I think we're going backwards. Um, and, and I, I guess that's, I, I, I guess things are cyclical in a, in a way. And, um, there's some backlash when, you know, when you, when you make two steps forward, there's always someone that's getting scared and bringing it two steps back. I think it's, it relates again to their own internal fear, fear and their own disconnection from their own humanity. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a tough, just ongoing process. People, I think just in general fear change or, or mm-hmm. pe- people like the, you always say that, you know, people are dumb, but individuals are smart kind of thing. Cause like you mm-hmm. get the group think and it's like, mm-hmm. it's hard to move that ship. It's like trying to steer the Titanic. It takes yeah. a long time as opposed to a speedboat. Yeah. Um, let's, let's talk though about victims. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched, uh, I was at work and I happened to watch a clip on Twitter of Anderson Cooper interviewing a young girl who had, who had died's father. Mm-hmm. And it was like a four minute video. And it was one of the realest moments of television yeah. I've seen. And it was heartbreaking. Yeah. And it's, it was very tough to watch. Mm-hmm. And it's like, th- that, that is that's the result of someone else's trauma being taken out the wrong way. Mm-hmm. And now this mm-hmm. person has a lifelong of trauma that, that and they yeah. would never do, do what this person did in retaliation. They have to just keep that within them and mm-hmm. find a way to live. How do you, I'm sure you've dealt with people that have been on the, on this receiving end and mm-hmm. have to live with this. How do you, how do you deal with that? How do you get people to um, not move beyond, but to live with it and, and, of course, because this is a podcast about a band, you know, what elements yeah. of music can one use yeah. to, to help someone through these kinds of things? You're going to be forever changed, right? That's just, you're going to be forever changed in some way. Um, any kind of work, whether it's with adults, whether it's with kids, any kind of trauma work, the, the goal is again to, be able to, at some point, safely return to these parts of yourself that carry pain. Because again, as human beings, in order to survive, we disconnect, we exile those parts of ourselves. So ultimately, the goal is, as a therapist, for you to be able to help your clients. First of all, you're being there with their pain, but ultimately the ultimate goal is to help them to be able to be with that part of themselves. And with, with children in general, I work mostly with adults and there's, a, there's 
there's a lot of talk involved. Um, with children in general, that's not the way you do it. You know, there's a lot of really good um, art therapists, music therapists, play therapists that uh, provide a safe environment, a safe nurturing environment to allow kids to slowly be there um, with that pain. So when a kid's engaged in art and, and, and they have the presence of this therapist being completely nurturing and, and just loving, um, and they're engaging in this art or they're engaging in this play, ultimately what they're doing is returning and being with that part of themselves that they had to distance themselves from in order to move forward. And, and you continue to do that and, and you, it's a daily ongoing process um, that hopefully will get easier. And um, hopefully, uh, you know, you'll eventually you have, eventually some people can get to a place of, even increased wisdom when they've been in, in, when they've had trauma. But I mean, of course, this situation is just so, again, just so difficult. Um, so they're in for a long road, but ultimately that's, that's where these kids and adults need to be. Um, just in an environment that's completely supportive, nurturing, um, and someone who's skilled in helping guide towards these parts of themselves that are carrying the pain and have been exiled, have been pushed away. Um, so they can start to be with that. You make a good point there. And it's, it's kind of full circle to the point of this podcast being a Pearl Jam mm-hmm. podcast, talking mm-hmm. about using art and music obviously is art um, to mm-hmm. find a way through it. And how many times have you listened to a song and then the, you hear the artist in an interview say, you know, I was feeling this, that, and the other thing and writing the song got me through it. Um, I mean, <laughs> Pearl James better man. Yeah. Ed's way of getting through the fact that he learned about his stepdad being a certain way or, or, you know, the song alive is it with dramatization, but like there are things, there are songs that people can do that people can create um, to help them get through. And then it helps the listener who's hearing that song, who maybe it really strikes a nerve, strikes a chord. Um, I, I, I say, I've said it before on this, on this show, but the reason why I like Pearl Jam, the reason probably why you like Bruce in a lot, a lot of ways is very similar in that for me, it was the band was playing with the band was listening to me by playing at me. Uh huh. Uh-huh. The music that I was hearing, I was like, wow, you know, I, I feel disillusioned too, or I feel upset too. And maybe it's not because of the exact reason what you said, but like the way that you're doing it, I get, Yeah. you know, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and 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 Jason, you, when you talk about Eddie Vedder or Bruce Springsteen, or or, I mean, I think part of why these guys are so good at their um, at their chosen profession is because of the insight that they have, um, and and the work that they've done to, um, to be on that journey, like I mentioned earlier, to reconnect with. Mm-hmm their own pain. I mean, I've seen Eddie, I've seen uh, Eddie veteran in, in interviews talking about his dad. And I, I, this is an insightful guy who's done a lot of work. Same with Springsteen. He's been in like 30 years of psychotherapy and, and these, so, and even before they were in that, there was some spark in them. And I think this is what fuels their art. Um, part of it is they're trying to make sense of what's going on with 
within them. And that's why a sad, depressed 20 year old kid like I was gets hope from that mm-hmm. and gets and finds solace in that. And again, um, motivates me to get on my own journey. And I, I think, I think that's what those two guys, um, do magnificently. So, yeah, I think, I think definitely these, these guys aren't dumb, man. These guys have done a lot of work and I think that's reflected in the depth of their music. Question. Yeah. Well, George, um, thank you for trying to help us understand, um, both parts of these really fucked up formulas. Yeah. Um, and why people might walk down these paths and wh- how people can continue down the path they're on uh, as the the victim or the, um, yeah. yeah, as the victim. It's uh, something I'm sure we're not going to find a solution to anytime soon because, as you said, there are many people that are in positions of power who don't seem to give a shit. Um, yeah, yeah um, we got and, yeah. until it happens until people like Ted Cruz's daughters are, you yeah. know, God forbid, and I'm not saying that right. they should. Yes. Yes. As the point is, you know, until it happens in your back, in your f- backyard, sometimes people don't really care. And that's really, really a shame. But anyways, um, we, we, we yeah, before I leave, yeah, I just, yes. I want to say thank you guys so much. It's been great. And I just want to, man, my heart goes out to, uh, everyone who's been impacted by this and it's just been so difficult. And, and, and like you said, we all have, uh, kids and I mean, I've, I've recognized this really sad, sort of hopeless part of myself kind of in the background since this has happened, I'm trying to take care of it. And I'm, I'm trying to just be mindful of that. And, and I tell you, man, I'll look at my kid. Um, when I think about these kids and it's, it's too much, it's too much and man like you said something has got to change i know these guys you know i know it's a complicated issue and you got guys who are saying it's not gun control it's not this can we try something you know yeah, and can something. we hey how about we give gun control a try and see what happens man because this is unacceptable man it's just crazy how long are we going to keep doing this shit you know so but thank you guys so much. Um, it was a pleasure. Really thanks for staying up late, up. George. I know it's it's very late where you are in Virginia. <laughs> no problem, man. It was great talking to you on a little different uh, different kind of level, Jason. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll get to the, the family uh, discussions another time next time we get to uh, hang out. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. Thank you again. And uh, thanks to Melissa for uh, telling you to come on. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. Thanks, Paul. It's good meeting you. And uh, thanks a lot. Cheers. I really pleasure. I really, I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Again, thank you to George for coming on and uh, enlightening us uh, from a position that we do not have um, with all of his experience and wisdom. So, Really appreciate it. Um, well, we're going to continue the theme here, though. Uh, as you can guess, or I think I said it in the, in the interview, I can't remember. It's been 30 minutes since then, I think. Uh, we're going to get to our Lyric of the Week. And Lyric of the Week. This week comes from Verses, and it's Glorified G. Paul, if you don't mind, usually 
I like to hear what you have to say so I know what not to say to sound stupid. But I like to go first this time, if you don't mind. By all means. So the floor is yours. Thank you. Uh, we all know the impetus of this song. Uh, Dave Eppersees mentions to the guys, he got an air rifle for just messing around. Ed wasn't having it, mocked him and nearly verbatim in the song, especially after Dave mentioned that he bought two of them and the rest of the song is America. Um, America's obsession with the second amendment without actually understanding what it's really saying is the shocking part to me. It's always been the shocking part to me. Let's read the amendment together. Shall we? A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Let's break this down. A well-regulated, repeat, regulated militia. Militia. A militia is like a small little army of people who are not trained to be soldiers. That's what a militia is. Remember, this was written in the 19th century, early 19th century, right? If I'm not mistaken. I'm not a history major. But I believe it was well, 17... even earlier than that. <laughs> 18th, 18th century. My mistake. 1790 something, right? Something like that. Whenever the amendment came through. Point is, long fucking time ago, when militias were a thing. Because who has thought of that word in modern culture? No one. So... A well-regulated militia. The security of a free state, not to protect one's home, not to protect one's self, but to secure a state's freedom from overthrow, tyranny, etc., etc. That right shall not be infringed. Infringe means to break the terms of. Creating laws around the safe purchase of said arms is not infringing a right. It is regulating it. Quite literally, with the first fucking part of this amendment states if the second amendment never said well regulated the common sense americans would have no leg to stand on but here we are and then there's the whole god element a this is not a christian nation look up the treaty of tripoli while it does not say that the men who created it and this country weren't god fearing it also did not claim that the U.S. was created as a Christian one. It was created for and with freedom from and of religion, whichever anyone chose. Hell, why do you think the pilgrims came to this place in the, in the first place? So it always comes back to this, right? That America's original laws, the Constitution, the amendments are essentially handed down directly from God, Jesus himself, which of course is nonsense. It's the, um, I'm going to call it the ipso facto rule. Well, even if... The founding fathers said it's not a Christian nation. They were Christian and they wrote the laws. So ipso facto, God says it's okay to do X, Y, Z. The mental gymnastics to claim America as a Christian nation are insane to me. And the justification for doing terrible things in this country because of this are numerous and embarrassing. By the way, again, this isn't to say anyone can believe whatever religion or not they want. That, that's not the point. Or cannot, I should say. The point is too many gun lovers in this country try to justify their armories because God said it's okay. That is what Ed was boiling it all down to in that second line. Sarcastically, of course, and one of my favorite Eds is the sarcastic one. 
I mentioned at the beginning about the air rifle. When Ed had asked Dave about it, he said, oh, it's just a glorified pellet gun to downplay what it was. So the story goes, of course, I don't want to speak out of turn. And if Dave, I'm sorry, if, um, if the story is different, you guys know there's always an open invitation to Dave to come on the show. Not that he wants to rehash this, but I digress. But to the story and the lyrics point, downplaying firearms is something that's so common. When we talk about the AR-15, which many scholars and even military veterans will argue is an unnecessary weapon for the common person, we often argue what the point of it is. Why do people feel the need to own this thing? I've actually had people who own them tell me stuff like, oh, well, we have a ton of uh, varmint that's overpopulated in the area and they're eating our crops and so whatever. And so that's the best tool to control that. Okay, I understand the application, but do you need that tool? I don't know that you do. It's, 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 that, that doesn't hold water for me. And finally, the last line here. Again, we've spoken about it tonight a bit. Feeling manly when armed. The good guy with the gun thing. This John Wayne, Bruce Willis, Keanu Reeves type person. This avatar for what a man is supposed to be that we talked about with George earlier. Our friend Christian Lopez will tell you all about how stupid that is on his own podcast, talking about how manliness isn't just testosterone. It's also about embracing vulnerability and in your own mental health, which is what George is trying to bestow upon his clients all the time, his patients. This sense of testosterone flowing through the body when strapped is just, just why? What about the ability to close your finger around a piece of metal and end a life makes you feel like a bigger, better man? I'd say women too, but I can't because I can't think of any mass shootings where the woman was the perpetrator. And oh, by the way, we've only been speaking about mass shootings, but gun deaths in general are out of control and they're perpetrated by everybody. Suicides, which George mentioned, I think handgun deaths are maybe number one now, not to mention the accidental shootings at home by kids who find their parents' guns. But again, I will digress. Gun nuts will claim it's all mental health and culture. That's the problem. Not the gun. It's the culture. We're getting all woke and liberal, and that's that's the problem. And yet they'll offer no honest solutions to combat any of those things. Because, of course, confronting mental health sounds weak to them, not manly, so it's off the table. There aren't a lot of lyrics to this song, but the opening ones here just kind of hit it perfectly for me. They're the microcosm of the gun culture in America to a T, and it's really scary that it's only gotten worse since 1993. Paul, what do you think? Well, what I, what I feel like I know is that the, the common argument I hear is that it's a fundamental right. Uh, that said, I could argue that it's a fundamental right in concept and that concept is is no older than 2008 Mm. i say that because for more than 200 years uh following the adoption of the second amendment itself federal judges uniformly understood that the right protected by the constitution was applied only to keeping and bearing arms for military purposes and while it limited power of the federal government, it imposed no limit at all on states and local governments to regulate firearm use. So if you, if you flash forward, there was kind of a status quo without understanding. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't until 2008 that I feel that we started to see a change because I feel like this amendment 
provides zero obstacles to regulate the ownership of the types of weapons that are being used in these mass killings. And that I could argue that Congress has a responsibility to enact laws that would actually expand the use of things like background checks and mm-hmm. limit the availability of, of some of these types of weapons and, and some of the mechanisms by which uh, semi-automatics can be converted to automatics, which is a separate level. But uh, here's the thing. When you start thinking about the progressions of how these things started, the NRA and their campaign against federal regulation really changed the, the status quo that had existed for over 200 years. So in Columbia versus Heller, which is a court case from 2008, it was decided that you can keep a handgun in the home for self-defense. In McDonald versus Chicago, 2010, the courts decided that the power of the local government was limited when it came to outlawing possession of handguns by private citizens. To, to this day, if I'm being frank here, I'm not really sure why the courts ever thought it was their place to intervene in public policy on gun control, a domain, a domain, pardon me, which, which I believe at least falls squarely on voters, elected rep- representatives, not federal judges. So regardless, uh, d- despite all that, the, the Miller ruling in 1939 was actually never overruled, which I didn't even get into, but I, I don't want to bore the listeners who are not even from the United States with, with this much jargon. Uh, I guess what I'm trying to get to is that the Second Amendment, the drafters didn't draft this amendment in our Constitution so you can own weapons, so you can own AR-15s and, or even handguns because you had the right to self-defense. In fact, you've always had the right to self-defense in a court of law. It's called a procedural right. No states were worried about the federal infringement on that right. The Second Amendment was drafted to protect states, not people, from the federal government interfering in their ability and power to ensure that their militias were well, well regulated. So this amendment shouldn't be interpreted as, it should be, pardon me, it should be interpreted as a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms when serving in the militia shall not be infringed. If you're not in the militia and serving to that capacity, it it, it really calls things into questions. So into question, pardon me. So look, maybe it needs to be reworded further. You know, maybe the new context needs to, to be implied, uh, or maybe we just need to start implying it the way that it had been for over 200 years before uh, 1939, that the Heller case and, and, and 2008. So that it starts to mean what it was always intended to mean. And there's no more confusion, manipulation, and exploitation of this rule that I think has really just flooded the land with these unnecessary instances of gun violence and a national tragedy. I mean, it is, it, you would talk about pandemics this in is its pan- own way. This, this, is, this is very much of that ilk. The so, two things, Paul. Sorry, go ahead, go ahead and finish your thoughts. No, I, I, I just, you know, again, like I said, I mean, we have listeners from all over the world here that are probably like going down a rabbit hole with us right now because they're, they're yeah. not versed in, in constitutional law. And by no stretch of the imagination, am I a, a constitutional lawyer or anything like that? So I, I don't want to misrepresent myself here. Uh, but I think that the best way to, to paraphrase all this is to go back to what George said, which is we, we got to start somewhere and, and we've got to try something because what we're doing is not working. And this is the only country in the world, I feel like, where this kind of stuff is as prolific as it is. And I'm not saying that America doesn't have its virtues because people come from all over the earth because they want to be here. So uh, I'm proud to be an American, but that doesn't mean that I can't be ashamed at times 
mm-hmm. of some of the things that happen here that that I think represent us on a global scale. And this is definitely one of those things. And I, and thoughts and prayers are pretty hollow right now. And the reality is, I, I shouldn't need this to make me want to hug my kids tighter before they go to bed at night. Very perfectly said. Um, a couple of uh, thoughts uh, on the heel of that is when other countries have had shootings like this, they act almost immediately and the shootings stop. We don't do that. Um, England, Australia, I believe Germany had something. Um, New Zealand, I think the next day. Um, hell, even Sacramento just did a, a buyback and they ran out of the gas gift cards to people who were going to turn their guns in. They, yeah, they, they ran out in like hours because people were like, yeah, I don't fucking need this thing, man. Um, but the question is, can you put the toothpaste back in the tube? Because too many people in this country I, believe... I, I, I know, and they believe it. They and, believe and the Second Amendment is the way that it's been... And this is why the courts are so important. This is why when people... And I have to go down another rabbit hole. I, I apologize, guys, but now I'm fired up. When you go into an election and you, under, you understand the fact that who you are voting for influences courts, influences who can appoint judges. Because now in some parts of the country and in, in local um, elections, you actually can vote judges in or out um, like we can here in, in Los Angeles. But federal judges... Um, they are generally appointed, if I'm not mistaken. And that's why it's so important to vote with those kinds of things in mind, not just the platitudes and policies that we hear in, in TV commercials and in the, in, the, in the speeches and all that crap. You got to think further down the line. Right. And so when you allow people to get into power who can make choices about who judges are, who can define things like this and change what a law is meant to be. And again, you have to apply the context. When these when these amendments were, were written 250 years ago almost, they had no clue this is even possible. Right. So you have to yeah. interpret yeah. this interpret this amendment in a way. What would what would 1780s Ben Franklin be thinking? Well, he wouldn't think that we'd be just, you know, everyone had a damn gun and it's all Wild West shit. It's a diff- it's a completely different thing. It wasn't on the purview. Well, well, nor nor could they anticipate that we would have the ability to possess the type of firearms that we do. On now, top of that, exactly, with, with the, the, the lethal capabilities that that they do to, to, to present a, themselves a, in a in a capacity to facilitate mass murder. Um, it is an absolute. Look, I, I've heard all the arguments oh, about yeah, what could be carried out with 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 things of, of far less. Um, caliber and capacity so I, i'm not sitting here trying to to draw attention to a particular weapon um I, and, and listen there, there's a very good chance that some of you listening are staunch supporters of, of the second amendment and and i'm not trying to tell you that what you believe in and everything you stand for is necessarily wrong what i am saying is we need to advance this conversation to some level of action that gets us to a place where we don't have to be terrified that one day our kids aren't going to come home from school, for God's sake. Because guess what? I mean, this is <laughs> when, since the good when guys, did school become Fallujah? Come on. When, when the good <laughs> guys with the guns aren't going in and when, they're, and when they finally do go in and they're too scared to confront one person with one gun and there's fucking five of you, go fuck yourself. I don't want to hear the arguments. 
because that doesn't make any goddamn sense. There's a lot of this doesn't make sense to me, you know, and, and look, you and I pride ourselves on, on trying not to, to make this a, a political show. And, and I know that there's a lot about Pearl Jam's politics that are, are polarizing. But if you're listening to this band and you're listening to this podcast, uh, something tells me that at, at the very least, you don't find the positions that the band oftentimes espouses in sports to be utterly detestable because I don't mm-hmm. know how you could, you could stomach listening to, to, to so much of what, yeah. what the band talks about live at least, but, uh, and, and the level of activism that they support. But again, I don't want to just speak to an echo chamber here. You know what I'm saying? I want to have conversations. I'm open to being challenged in it. And I'm, uh, you and I belong for many years to, to a political group online where we would have a lot of uh, very diverse, uh, at least I tried yeah. to be, to be, have, have very, very frank, but also very, very civilized discussions about some of these issues. And yeah. quite frankly, I presented a lot of the same arguments I did just here on this podcast and it did not produce the type of, of change in thinking or position that, that maybe I had hoped that it, w- it would. So I, I don't suffer from the delusion that anything I said tonight is somehow changing anyone's mind. All I'm saying is, as I mentioned before, we have to advance conversation to action so that we don't continue to see what happened at Rob elementary happen again. And the, I, I feel like it's a broken record because people yeah. said this after Columbine, they said it after Sandy hook, they said it, it, it after Parkland. Um, Parkland, thank you. It, it it keeps going, and it's just it's beyond inexcusable. And uh, and if you're listening to this abroad, yeah, uh, I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> well, no, but I, 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 this is a a, a PSA. You know, yeah. I mean, if you're listening to this abroad, you know what what is it? I'd be curious to know what what is your perception of American culture? Why do you think is it just the the accessibility of firearms? Why do you think? In your mind, because I can sit here and speculate as an American, sure, yeah. but we have listeners in Australia, we have listeners in Germany, in Brazil, other countries that don't have these types of atrocities happening on a regular basis. What do you think it is about the American culture that makes this so prolific? And what are the sentimentalities of where you live that you believe maybe acts as a mitigating factor to prevent these kinds of things? I want to learn. I yeah. want to understand I'm not here to point fingers and get mad and judge. I, I'm trying to, like I said, advance from conversation to action, but that requires being informed. The last thing I will say is, and to your point about advancing the conversation, uh, there's a, there's a, as there always is, there's a scene in The Simpsons where <laughs> Ned Flanders' uh, hipster beatnik parents say, we've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas. that's what i feel like where we're at with this with this with this shit so um i think there's solutions and that that everybody can get behind people that that want to have a gun people don't have want to have a gun but but puts together a framework where we can actually live so um we could talk for another hour and a half we're not going to let's uh let's get to our live cut of the week when we were at uh night two here on this gigaton tour they started playing this song glorified yep. g and i and i shook your shoulder you, violently because i was like you lost your mind oh my god this is <laughs> i just i just really enjoy it. it's not the best song off the album but i just really enjoy it and they never played little it, did so. we know what would happen a couple uh, weeks later yeah so anyways um what would you say is the best live version of this song 
with, with of course, the confines of your rules. Oh, boy. So th- th- this one's a little tricky. Uh, th- there are a handful of, of fantastic versions, but I- I'm compelled to say April 12th, 1994, The Orpheum. like two thoughts it's slower than the studio version Mm -hmm. and one thing that i wish ed would have done that he doesn't but there's probably a a, a, an effect here for the reason why he didn't do it he doesn't sing the i can feel your heart in your neck lines and i can steal your heart from your neck lines which i which i wish he would have done it because at the time his voice could really fucking handle that right so for you i'm guessing the the location and the context of the show probably has something to do with it. 
Uh, why would you choose uh, this one? For sure. First of all, I like the, the, the uh, altered pacing. I mm. felt that the, the the different tempo actually worked better. To me, this this is a, a quality mid-tempo song that I felt like there was this need to have to, it was like mid-tempo, but they felt like, ah, oh, but we can't do mid-tempo. We got to accelerate this. You know, it was mm. a, a, yeah. a largely part of the, the versus era of compositions. I think if you really look at everything, even elderly women, there's a frenetic pace to it. Um, uh, the daughter is slower, obviously. I'm not saying the whole album is this way, but uh, Go is arguably the, the fastest tempoed song in the entire catalog. So I felt like just kind of playing it a little slower allowed this song to breathe a little bit. And um, I mean, obviously the sound quality is stellar. You know, This show was included in the Verses and Vitology box set for those of you who own that. So mm-hmm. I, I think it's an iconic show in a lot of ways for that reason too. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think that they just they nailed the essence of the song, and I think that whatever's absent from it, it, it there's, it's more than compensated for by what I think is just absolutely stellar sound quality and delivery, and just just absolutely nailing. Like I said, just what I think is is the essence of the song um, at a tempo that just allows the harmony to breathe a bit more. All right. Fair enough. Um, it, obviously, that's a, a legendary show and we're lucky to have had it included. And um, I enjoyed the performance and I thought you're right that the slower tempo, while it kind of threw me for, for a second, I was like, I think I do like it a little bit more because some of them, as you said, do get sped up a little bit. They have a tendency to do that a lot, with a lot of songs. Live. Yeah. Yeah, that's so. true. All right, guys, there's the show. Um, bit cathartic for us, um, especially as parents of young kids. So yeah. I know a lot of you out there um, live in the same world, and it's tough right now. So give your kids a hug for us. And um, we'll be back next week with another episode. Um, yeah, I'm not going to even do any of the housekeeping. Uh, we'll, we'll see you next week. And until you do, until we do, you've been listening to the state of love and trust. Mm-hmm.